Welcome to The Green Urbanist, the podcast for urbanists fighting climate change. I'm Ross. Today's episode is an interview with Julia Maudi. Julia is a senior energy and sustainability consultant with Tuff and Ferriby Taylor in London. One of her areas of expertise is well-being in the built environment. So the focus of our conversation is how architecture and urban design affects our health. Well-being is a huge topic. To keep this conversation to a reasonable length, we've chosen to focus on three topics. Air quality, thermal comfort and sedentary lifestyle. If you're unfamiliar with the term, thermal comfort is to do with how we experience temperature and the effect of this on our productivity and health. There are many, many more aspects of well-being that we didn't have time to cover. For instance, we didn't talk about nutrition, mental health, the importance of community or biophilia, or innate connection with the natural world. If you enjoy this episode and you want to know more, maybe Julia can come back on for another episode and we'll talk about these topics. Now, we are recording this in July of 2020. COVID-19 is still very much present in the world, so we do talk about infectious disease towards the end of the podcast. Finally, just a point on some terminology. Julia mentions two things you might be unfamiliar with. These are the well-building standard and the fit-well standard. These are rating systems that you can follow when you're designing or retrofitting a building to make it as healthy as possible. A lot of what Julia does is helping architects and developers to apply these standards to buildings um, so they can be certified under well or fit well. We don't go into depth on the standards, but just be aware that they exist, as we do mention them uh, a, f- a few times in passing. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Julia Maudi. Hi, Julia. Thanks for uh, being on the podcast. How are you? I'm good, Ross. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here and have this interview. Why don't you begin just by telling us a bit about who you are and your background? Okay. Uh, so again, I'm Giulia Mori, um, and I uh, graduated as an environmental architect initially. And then just after that, I moved to the UK to study in a master uh, at UCL called the Environmental Design and Engineering. And uh, since then, I've been working in the industry as a sustainability consultant. I have, in the meanwhile, in the last four or five years, achieved a number of uh, accreditations, such as BRIAM and WELL, um, and I'm very eager to learn more and more. I'm still collaborating with UCL. I'm currently um, supporting uh, as a tutor for dissertations or sometimes for course exams. And I also um, deliver a number of CPDs and presentation uh, talking about well-being in the built environment and how this affects, you know, resilience of building assets and sustainability. And where are you uh, working at the moment? Uh, I'm currently a sustainability uh, consultant at TFT, Duffy and Ferby Taylor, uh, which is property consultancy based in uh, London, which offices all around the UK. That's great. It sounds like you have a lot of hats. And you do a lot of different uh, kinds of work. Uh, what we want to talk about specifically today is about uh, well-being in the built environment and within buildings. Uh, that seems to be a big part of your work. Uh, so maybe we can jump in, just ask, so what is well-being? Why is it important? And why, why should people listening be more aware of it? So when we talk about health and well-being, we have to think that this is not just about the absence of a disease, uh, but ultimately is the enjoyment of a productive life that brings us happiness mm. uh, and makes us feel, you know, satisfied and, and happy with what we are doing. And this includes both uh, physical well-being and mental well-being. Okay. 
And another thing that I'd like to, to bring to the table uh, in this conversation is that when we talk about well-being focused design, we think about a human-centric design, which is slightly different to, you know, when we talk about sustainability, because usually when we talk about sustainability, we refer to resource sustainability and how we, you know, we treat the environment, what we take from the environment to, to build our buildings, ultimately. While the well-being design, it's very human-focused. So how does a person uh, live within a building? How, how is the building supporting this person's health? Mm. And personally, when, when it comes uh, for me to talk to you know, design teams or clients about this human-centric design, I always try to you know, challenge them a little bit and remember that, for example, when we talk about uh, an office building, let's say in London or, you know, wherever you want, there is always um, some stuff that works around the building, such as the front of our staff, so security, uh, people that work in reception, uh, and also back, uh, back of our staff, so engineers, uh, the facility manager, etc. And sometimes we tend to, you know, forget about these people and how they spend so much time of their life in this building. Mm. And often, mostly in the back of ours, people that work there don't have access to, you know, basic things such as natural daylight. So sometimes I try to challenge, you know, design teams and clients again to remember that these people will live and work in a building for eight hours a day every day. <clears throat> and it, it will be detrimental to their, you know, both physical health and mental health if they don't have access to, you know, a good daylight access or um, good indoor quality, etc. So we have to think about different aspects of the building and just and try to focus on all the people that are going to use the building, not just the end users, but mm. also the staff that makes the building run. Yeah, that's a great point. It's not just about the it's not just about the CEO having a well ventilated <laughs> office or or having full length uh, full height windows. It's about everyone that has to use the building. Well, it's, it, there's obviously a lot of aspects to this concept of well-being. So why don't we just start, in a way, a bit from the negative, which, which is, what are some of the ways that the built environment and buildings are harmful to us uh, that, that we need to be aware of? And then we can, after that, we can talk about what do you do to uh, improve well-being and to counter these things that are harmful to us? Uh, yes, definitely. This is um, starting from the harms. Uh, of the built environment, we can, um, I think today, explore three three different aspects of it. Of course, it's not just limited to these three points that I'm going to raise now. So the first one is air pollution. So outdoor air pollution that comes from um, factories, that comes from traffic, that comes from uh, running buildings such as uh, using, you know, your heating and cooling systems, your ventilation systems, etc. And then the second aspect to air quality is indoor air quality. Mm. So what comes from, um, for example, toxicants, toxic materials that we install in our buildings. Um, sometimes we can still purchase furniture or building materials that have formaldehyde. That is not great to breathe when, <laughs> when you go into a building um, and other, you know, other chemicals that I can't even mention now because their names are, you know, too, too complicated <laughs> even for, for me to remember them. But um, you could still, you know, purchase certain materials that are not great for, 
human health, mm. um, mostly when installed again in an indoor environment and then maybe there's not good air recirculation, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is a really good point is it's, it's, we obviously focus on the air pollution caused by cars um, and the particulate matter um, and the nitrous oxide and things like that. But it's uh, just because you're inside doesn't mean, I guess, that you're uh, breathing healthy air or you're breathing clean air. And so there's also stuff in, in the furniture and in the paint and in uh, all this kind of you know, machinery. Printers are really bad as well. Yeah, printers produce ozone when they, mm. uh, when they work. So let's say a normal office printer will not harm you too much, but would be better to have it, for example, closed in a room that is dedicated just to the printer mm. or having an extract vent on top of the printer so that that helps a little bit, uh, you know, air um, recirculation, mm. etc. Uh, and also another aspect to indoor air pollution is the number of people in a space. So when we breathe, we, um, we exhale CO2, which is ultimately not very good for us to breathe in uh, big concentrations mm. it, it usually makes us very sleepy yes so, i've definitely experienced that <laughs> exactly so when you when you are in a in uh, for example in your in your office when you used to wear in your office building <laughs> remember uh, those <laughs> remember those days um and it was i don't know 3 p.m in the afternoon quite warm day all you and your colleagues all in the office and at some point everybody feels a bit drowsy and sleepy it could be because you had a heavy lunch but also because you're all in the office, you've been there for like a number of hours now and the, the CO2 levels have built up and your air circulation system, your ventilation system is not getting rid of the CO2. So that makes all of you a bit drowsy. Um, and then I think moving on to, to the second point of my list today is um, a little bit of climate change, which influence on the thermal comfort. So we know that climate change is happening and that we really have to slow it down. I know you're talking about this in other um, episodes of your podcast, so I'm not going to dwell on that. But in terms of how this affects our thermal comfort, um, we can think about the heat waves. For example, the heat wave that we had uh, at the end of June here in the UK and I think across the rest of Europe as well. Mm. Um, or... Um, stormy weather and how the buildings react to these you know exacerbated weather situations where we have a lot of rain or a lot of wind or very very hot days so this has an impact on our thermal comfort ultimately mostly if um, our buildings are fully glazed mm. so this has an impact on you know the people that use the building and the building services of the building because to keep an indoor temperature that is comfortable for the people in the building we have to run the systems very very hardly and that will ultimately um, consume them earlier than we yeah. thought when we installed them yeah I, I always laugh slightly when i see these beautiful skyscrapers fully glazed and then on a sunny day all the blinds are down. And you think, well, what's the point of having fully glazed if, you, if it's too hot to even look out on a sunny day? All the blinds are down and all the electric lights are on. Yes. So you're, <laughs> you're using your air conditioning at maximum, plus all your lights are on. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a failure of the basic concept of the building. Yeah. yeah. So I, I am a great fan of um, bioclimactic architecture, which mm. means, you know, building 
building buildings that are um, designed for the climate of the place where you're building them. Okay, not just the ones that are fashionable or, exactly. or in the style of the moment. At the same time, though, I, I appreciate that sometimes the industry doesn't go in that direction. So that we have to, you know, in- input on the design of the buildings that are going to be fashionable so that these are sustainable and healthy buildings. Mm. So th- there are ways around that, even in, you know, kind of skyscrapers, mm. maybe not fully glazed. Um, but we, you know, we always try to make the most of it, even when the client aspiration is different from, for example, a bi- bioclimatic architecture okay. building. And then I guess the this last point, my third point today, is um, our new sedentary lifestyle. Mm. So I don't know if you if you recently heard this uh, quote that is uh, sitting is a new smoking, and how you know sitting down for eight hours a day during you know our working hours um, make us suffering from musculoskeletal diseases. There's also an element of of urban design here as well because. I think many people are in a situation where they <clears throat> leave their house, get in a get in a car, drive to work, uh, walk to their desk, sit down for eight hours, leave the desk, go to their car, drive home, sit on the couch. And that's sort of an element of the, at least when we are going to the office, living in London, we can cycle. Uh, and even if we take the tube, we have to walk to the tube <laughs> and walk from the tube station to the office. So there's that, that built-in exercise and built-in movement within the built environment yeah plus you have to stand up on the tube exactly always (laughs) (laughs) yes and all this you know uh sedentary lifestyle is building up on our you know strain on our muscles and our uh, skeleton plus in in some occasions is supporting the growth of overweight and obesity uh in certain groups of the population Mm, okay so People that that don't have access to, for example, healthy food or healthy lifestyle are prone, you know, to to overweight and obesity. Sure. So, and then I guess that's linked to heart disease, uh, cancer, diabetes as well down the line. So it's all yeah uh, connected. Exactly. So, and I think these are my three points for today: air pollution, thermal comfort with with climate change mm. in the picture, and um, the sedentary lifestyle three really key key things we need to be aware of i think especially with the thermal comfort aspect it must be so subjective of what different people find uh, the best kind of temperature to work in and that kind of thing so maybe we can talk next about okay so we've got our three three kind of core problems so what are what are some of the things you do to solve these problems or or to make sure that when you're uh, designing a new building or refurbishing a building that these things are sort of dealt with yeah, so um, I know that this podcast just doesn't, it doesn't focus only on building. So I, I think um, it would be very good for us to explore relatively urban strategies that we, that we could deal with um, to support, you know, to support our health in the community and, and help, you know, ourselves and the rest of the population thrive with this kind of design. So going back to the air quality point, we are currently uh, across across the globe and mostly here in the UK, also here in the UK, on a road to, to meet net zero carbon targets and also to um, the electrification of the energy grid, mm. uh, which ultimately will 
is, is phasing out is phasing us out of um, fossil fuels to use more and more renewables. For example, gas hobs are going to become electric hobs, mm-hmm. etc. So that we use less polluting energy sources on site, but we produce our energy off site and then we distribute it with an, uh, an electric energy grid. So in in this optic. We should be seeing uh, a decrease in uh, local environmental pollution mm. from, uh, you know, for example, our gas boilers and uh, the way we produce energy on site. Uh, and similarly, uh, we should be seeing more renewables helping us producing the energy for our buildings on site. So both these things will help us reduce in the local pollution. So the local, for example, particular matter pm 2.5 mm. pm 10 etc and the um the nox <laughs> yeah nitrogen dioxide nitrogen dioxide. um which and, i which yeah. i mispronounced earlier so i'm just acknowledging that <laughs> <laughs> um and then we have um i think another strategy from an urban point of view it's uh privileging sustainable transportation but we also have to think about the infrastructures that allow us to use this sustainable transportation. So it's not just about my employers providing me with a shower on side of my office and parking space in my office. I also need the infrastructures around my city to allow me to to cycle safely to my office. And also um, having the other people in the road with me that are not maybe driving a bicycle or an electric scooter to be aware of me as a different uh, traveler. Uh, Then when it comes to uh, indoor quality, uh, key to this is procurement, procurement of the materials that are not toxic, um, procurement of sustainable materials. So it's key for us to understand that uh, a material that has toxicants in it, in it, uh, such as formaldehyde or nasty glues, uh, nasty adhesives, etc., will not uh, will not be easy to recycle or to reuse. So that kind of folds out the idea of circular economy, mm. which is becoming more and more important and popular in the sustainability community. Mm. So the idea that you don't extract a material, use it, and then throw it away but that you reuse it as many times as possible so that you reduce the impact on your environmental resources. So, so this is one of the ways that well-being is synergistic with sustainability? Yeah, I think we can talk about this later, though. Yeah, sure. I think this is a big topic, um, but that's a really good first example. Um, and then following on the indoor air pollution topic, uh, we also have to um, make sure that our spaces don't overcrowd mostly now in a time of COVID. Uh, But as I said before, CO2 can be uh, a bit detrimental for um, people's productivities and people's health. So making sure that there are not too many people in the same space and the air quality uh, stays fresh and stays very, very good, very high all the time is very important. So it's either reducing or having the right amount of people in space or having higher ventilation rates. Mm. Uh, and then I think my last point on this um, is to have to design and have a good air filtration that is designed according to the outdoor air pollution. So if we know that the outdoor air pollution is quite high, for example, uh, you are located on a very busy road, um, 
that has a waste traffic on it, etc., you might need uh, a bit of a finer filtration. Okay, and uh, what about thermal comfort? Uh, as as I was mentioning earlier, um, ultimately, you know, a bioclimatic uh, architecture would be, um, you know, the best the best solution uh, f- from both a sustainable and a healthy uh, design perspective. But again, as this is not always the case, um, when we when we design a building, when we're commissioned to design a building, etc., um, we have to to think about thermal comfort as a very complex issue mm. because as, as you mentioned quickly earlier, thermal comfort is very subjective. It really depends from, um, for example, um, what you're wearing uh, when you are in a, in a space, uh, what you had uh, for lunch or for breakfast. Sometimes your, your gender can influence that. Usually women feel colder in a space than men do and, and a whole range of, of other you know, variables could be taken into account from this point of view. So it's a very complicated issue and you uh, really cannot really imagine to to design a building that meets 100% mm. uh, satisfaction from a thermal comfort point of view because people will always, you know, be a bit colder or a bit hotter than they should, than that they feel they should be in a space. So the best, the best way to, you know, design thermal comfort is to make sure that when you, um, you run, for example, a thermal uh, comfort modeling, that kind of gives you an idea of how the building will perform with a with a number of people in in the building with the equipment that you would expect being in the building computers printers etc and in this way you can uh, modify your design to make sure you have the right systems installed in terms of thermal comfort so so it's quite a seems like it's quite a technical exercise you can sort of run a computer model to to of your building design with all your systems and you can figure out whether the thermal comfort will be adequate or whether you have certain hotspots or certain problem areas. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and you will see if some areas of the building are overheating and um, you can, you know, for example, add more windows to have more you know, natural ventilation in the space. Or if you're running a mechanical ventilated space, you can have higher ventilation rates or cooler uh, temperature ranges, etc. So, yeah, as you said, it, it's relatively technical. Uh, but, you know, technology today, it's supporting us a lot from this point of view and it's telling us where the building might fail, mm. um, a thermal comfort exercise and how we can, you know, adjust that for, for optimal comfort. And, and I guess from a sustainability point of view, it pays to get the basic design of the building right to get a, that sort of natural uh, cooling and natural ventilation correct rather than trying to retrofit it with like air conditioning afterwards. Yeah, it's correct. So um, even if you're, for example, designing a glazed skyscraper, uh, there are ways, for example, to have um, external shadings that will help your space not get overheated um, during very, very sunny days. So there are strategies around that too, to support both the well-being and the sustainability side of things. So the last uh, topic we were going to discuss was the sedentary behavior. So what are some solutions around that from your perspective? Yeah, so uh, as I was mentioning earlier for the air quality issue, um, for us to support active transportation, so from both a facility and an infrastructural point of view, 
it, it is very important because if we, uh, even in a, in a post-pandemic perspective, supporting people, you know, feeling, feeling safer if they cycle to work, for example, or if they can work to walk, etc., would be very, very important. And this will also support us being more active, have an active life, lifestyle and avoid being um, sedentary and having all those issues that we mentioned earlier. Uh, then we also, when we think about the building itself, we can also uh, design it to um, support active circulation within the building. So with, for example, motivational signs on the lift that uh, reminds you that the building has stairs. So maybe <laughs> if your office or if your um, classroom is only on the second floor, maybe you could walk it up and down instead of calling the lift, etc., so sometimes it's just about reminding people that, um, you know, the opportunity for them to move within the building are there. It's just that sometimes they're a bit hidden. Mm. Sometimes stairs are hidden from, um, for a security point of view, uh, or because we're only using them for fire safety. So they have to be locked in a certain way. So we have to remind people if it's possible that they can use um, alternative route that is not escalator or elevator, again, if possible. N- maybe not everybody can, or if, you're, if your office is on the 17th floor, I'm not <laughs> recommending you that you run up and down the stairs all the time. But um, yeah, there, there, there is a middle way there. I've, I've heard of a de- design solution called the um, irresistible staircase, which is where you design the staircase to, to basically have have windows and have a view and be sort of very maybe at the front of the building or very obvious so people walk in they'll naturally go to the stairs and they might actually even enjoy walking up them because then they get a view as they get higher up whereas the elevator is then hidden slightly (laughs) yeah there is there is a, a whole range of things that can be done to um to support people using the stairs such as um having music on the stairs or having what um the well-building standard calls gamification. So having a system that uh, makes you go up the stairs, for example, having the count of the calories for every step or having the use of colors um, or have, you know, some little game that's up to, you know, the designer creativity to to create. And that is, um, it's something that has, you know, very positive results once it's in place. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's sort of, uh, little ways to nudge people towards healthier behavior. Yeah. And then I guess the, the latest one, which is more, um, it, it's also supporting, you know, the mental health side of things is having a good uh, work-life balance or study life balance when it comes to, to, active, to an active lifestyle. Because if I don't allow myself having a, enough time or if I'm uh, working too late, working the weekends, etc., uh, that is not supporting me uh, being active because I'm always, you know, sitting down, studying or working and it's not, I'm not finding time for myself, etc. So mm. uh, this is something that we all have to be mindful of. And for, uh, let's say, from a certification point of view, when it comes to well-being, it's something that is down to the uh, employer to to provide to, their, yeah. to its employees. Com- company culture. Exactly. Mm. And, and also education around fitness and mental health, how being active supports your mental health as well and makes you less stressed and more productive, etc. So we've been talking a lot about um, 
I guess, uh, office buildings and workplaces. But I guess a lot of these principles are applicable to residential buildings um, and other kind of uses as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, that is that is correct. Um, sorry if I mention offices a lot. Um, that is the majority of what I do, but this is also applicable to residential buildings um, in a different way. So, for example, again, from an air quality point of view, I think I mentioned mechanical ventilation quite a lot. While for residential building, we would usually have natural ventilation. Mm. So allow, allowing you to open the windows as and when you want and you need, etc. But yeah, there um, the other considerations that uh, we went through, so thermal comfort, the sustainable transportation, the active lifestyle, etc. are definitely applicable to residential uses, education uses, um, leisure etc etc there's some key things that uh, local authorities could have in their plans like for instance the the new london plan says that you shouldn't have any um, single aspect north facing residential units and also a a lot of local authorities are really you know always pushing for outdoor immunity space so even if you're in a high rise you're giving people balconies uh, or a roof terrace or something like that is obviously really key for your mental well-being and um, physical health as well yeah, as as you mentioned just now, access to, to daylight and access to correct lighting level is paramount for our health and well-being because daylight and also electric lighting when it comes to that is what is triggering our circadian rhythm, so our sleep-wake cycle during the day. So having, for example, in our offices, in our schools, a very uh, a relatively blue bluish light Mm. Um, or access to good daylight make us more active during the day and then in the house having a warmer a warmer shade for our electric light will support us phasing out to to sleep Um, and for example using uh, mobiles that don't have a blue light filter or tvs or computer that don't have a blue light filter just before sleeping disrupts our sleep and is not supporting you know Mm. our well-being so uh, a lot of this comes to, you know, the design of the light that we have in the building, uh, having enough access to, to daylight and to outdoor views, etc. But also comes to the devices that we're using on a daily basis. Yeah, it's, it seems in a way that the more technologically advanced we become, the sort of more problems we create for ourselves. So we get further away from just the basics that we need in nature. So we've mentioned a lot during this uh, that we are recording this during the lockdown, the COVID-19 pandemic um, still very much present in the world. And I guess we can't talk about well-being without talking about this. I guess infectious disease and um, pandemics were not something you probably thought about much in the, in, before March or February of this year when you were designing buildings. But how is that going to change now? So that is partially correct. Because um, when it comes to uh, designing for well-being, we often, uh, we mostly use um, certifications such as the well-building standard or FitWell. Uh, and these mention infectious diseases to an extent. But at the same time, now both FitWell and, and Well are evolving their standards and are also preparing um, new ratings, for example, IWBI, which is the institution that is responsible for well, has just at the end of June uh, released a new rating, which is COVID specific, so infectious diseases specific. Uh, And the same is happening for FitWell. 
a few months down the line uh, is probably going to happen, I would imagine, towards the end of summer. Um, and what is happening in this um, specific ratings uh, created now because of the pandemic is still focusing a lot on air quality of our buildings and how air quality and water quality are influencing our, you know, our health every day. But they're also focusing a lot on emergency preparedness. Mm -hmm. So things like having uh, an emergency preparedness plan. So, for instance, uh, what happens if uh, we have a second wave of, um, of COVID later on during the year or maybe in the future? So having these plans from a, you know, company point of view or maybe school point of view uh, laid down so that you know what happens if we have to lock down again having uh, making sure that uh, again I'm, I'm using the office as a as an example because I found it relatively easy um, from this point of view but having plans so that all your employees uh, are given a laptop or a computer so that they can work remotely they have access to um, internet infrastructures etc so having this kind of um, emergency preparedness plan will, will really help and also have on site um, having on site emergency equipment such as hand sanitizer PPE uh, for example in my company we often go on site construction site so we already have a range of PPEs from you know helmet and boots etc but um, we will now also need to wear um, you know certain levels of filtration mask etc so allowing your employees to be able to use a company gloves or mask mm -hmm. have been um, accessible for all the employees. It's something that will, you know, support mm -hmm. the health and well-being of uh, the people working for you. And then another really important focus from this point of view is cleanliness. Both emergency preparedness and cleanliness were already part of the standards. Uh, it's just that now they've been improved. Say the requirements have been improved. So we know that uh, cleaning our hands or also cleaning the spaces where we live reduces the spread of infectious diseases. So this is a key in, uh, in health and well-being environment at the moment. Yeah, so after emergency preparedness and, and cleanliness, we also have to, um, again, mention air quality, indoor air quality, and how we're making sure that the air stays clean and fresh and that it is not... Um, recycled it's not recycled etc or if it is recycled it's filtered in a certain way so that um, the viruses are filtered out etc because uh, covid is ultimately airborne usually the ventilation the ventilation systems that we have in place in certain levels of buildings should be able to you know maybe increase the ventilation rates so that there is more fresh air flushed in the building during the day or if you have a naturally ventilated building um, you should be reminded to open the windows a bit more often. And then I think the last one is the uh, is what is usually called destination control and, and space um, space design. So, for example, one of the biggest problems at the moment is how we make sure that lifts don't overcrowd. Mm. So, um, and also how do we make sure that people don't touch the buttons all the buttons in the lift. Or take the stairs, people. Exactly, take the stairs. But again, if you're working on the 17th floor, maybe you can't take the stairs. <laughs> or if you're a person with impaired mobility or with any kind of disability, maybe you need to take the lift. So what we have to make sure is that um, 
there is a destination control system. So you, instead of pushing the buttons, keeping the door open, et cetera, et cetera, you basically book the lift when you check in the building mm. um, because your you know, so identity you... card knows where you have to go. Right. Um, or another way to do this is booking, for example, meeting rooms or making sure that instead of using um, hot desking, you're keeping your, uh, your station as it is or mm. you try to avoid pe different people using the same desk station within the same day. So that at least, you know, at night, um, the desks are cleaned and someone else can use the desk. Tomorrow. Yeah, many companies have moved towards a hot desking um, because it makes better use of space and obviously they can have smaller offices. But it's interesting that, you know, one of the unforeseen risks is that then you have, you may have people sharing a lot more surfaces than you might like. Although now that working from home has become more, more uh, normal, it sort of means in a way, hot desking might become more and more common. So I think having these sort of plans in place and sort of having an idea of what, how can you do this safely is really important. Yeah, I agree. I, I really don't think that COVID will be detrimental from, for hot desking. We would probably use it a bit differently from what we were used to use it earlier. Um, so again, as I said, instead of more people sharing the same desk or the same platform, uh, during the same day, hot desking would probably be allowed on, on different days. Mm -hmm. So if I use desk A today, you can use the same desk tomorrow. Okay. Uh, but maybe we will not use the same desk during the same day. Sure. Sure. So it sounds like there's, I mean, in a way, there's nothing too groundbreaking here. It's really just about being prepared. Now we know what can go wrong. We've learned lessons from the last few months. And now it's really about when this happens again whenever that will be, we need to be prepared for it and things should hopefully go a lot smoother the next time. So we, we mentioned a bit earlier about there's some ways that uh, well-being uh, synergizes with the sustainability concepts. As you said, we're moving towards zero carbon. So what are some of the ways that these work well together and what are the, some of the ways that they diverge? So I think starting as we did at the beginning with uh, the problems, that comes when we talk about sustainability and well-being, I would um, I would mention two of this. The first one is waste, and the second one is energy consumption. Mm. So one of the biggest topics and themes of sustainability is reducing waste, uh, making sure that none of our waste goes to landfill. And mostly now with this pandemic, we are probably seeing an increase of... Um, you know, surgical masks and gloves and disposable health equipment that is going to waste. And this is what we call operational waste, as opposed to construction or demolition waste in, in the built environment. So the use of single, single use plastic or single use, you know, emergency equipment is definitely having an impact on our operational waste. And this is something that is not very sustainable. But at the same time, at the moment, the priority is saving lives and making sure that um, we we defeat this disease. So it's, it's understandable at the moment. Um, and I think the way we can look at it in the future is to make sure that um, we find a way to, to be able to reuse this equipment in a safe way so that it's still healthy and it's still protecting us. And the second, <clears throat> the second point that I was raising is the 
um, energy consumption. So I think I mentioned um, mechanical ventilation and indoor quality a high number of times during this podcast. And that comes with an associated energy consumption. So if you have um, a ventilation system in your building, uh, that is consuming energy to be operating. So the more we need to use it, the more our energy bill goes up at the end of the month. So this is not very sustainable. And this is what in, in the sustainability community is, is advocated as a problem when it comes to well-being, because we are trying to make our buildings running uh, net zero carbon, but then at the same time to make sure that we are healthy in the building, uh, many of the new um, guidelines and best practice advices during this pandemic is to flush in more air in mechanical ventilated systems. So this will require more energy than we used to use. And this will have a, an environmental impact associated with it. So again, uh, we have to consider this in perspective because we have to make sure that our buildings are a, a healthy place for us to go and use. So mostly now when it comes to health, we have to make sure that that we support our health and that we're protecting the people using the buildings. So it's very important that even if this is coming with an associated energy consumption, we try to either offset it or install in more, um, more efficient systems or using renewables, etc. so that we try not to have too much of an impact on using fossil fuels, etc. So it sounds like in, in general, they align sustainability and well-being align quite well. But there's a few key areas where the, and a, a sort of decision needs to be made weighing up which one you, you sort of give priority to. Yeah, exactly. But as I said before, when it comes to materials and procurement, they really go hand in hand. Mm. So if you're procuring a healthy material, it's very likely that that is going to be a great material from a sustainable point of view because you will be able to reuse it um, or recycle it quite easily. And also the procurement um, routes required by both sustainability and well-being are again going hand in hand. So it's, it's great to make sure that our resources are not um, overused or wasted uh, when we're designing for both well-being and sustainability. Yeah, and also the sustainable transport element, as we said before, walking cycling taking public transport even it's probably healthier well, certainly is healthier than driving uh, a car all the time and also good for the environment as well so that's a really obvious one exactly um just to finish up my understanding of well-being in the built environment is that it's becoming more and more popular with uh, particular landowners and developers because it gives them uh, a unique selling point for their their building and their development but it's still, apart from the few, the few measures that I mentioned earlier about um, north-facing units having adequate daylight, uh, overshadowing, things like that in residential buildings, at the moment there isn't too much within the planning system to sort of get developers and get architects to, to do this as standards. So what, what are your thoughts on that? So um, this is a very good point, and uh, this is what I usually try again to challenge the audience with when I'm giving a presentation. And I think in the last few years, so let's say that the well-being community and the whole well-being movement is relatively young compared to the sustainability movement. 
and the planning system is slowly getting to to know and appreciate and embed this the strategies and these principles within their planning system. So, for example, the New London Plan is embedding well-being requirements within their uh, within the policies, uh, and this is a very very great news from our perspective because we know that we will have to uh, demonstrate how we are meeting those policies exactly, and how our buildings are designed for humans for humans for for occupiers, uh, and at the same time. Other uh, local authorities within the UK are starting mentioning well-being in their policies. And this, this is great as we see that the focus on well-being is, is growing from this point of view. But at the same time, it's still not a requirement. So n- none of the planning authorities within the UK are asking you, for example, to deliver a building to a fitwell standard or a well-building standard. And, and I don't think that is always the, the right route to go for a certification is not always the solution but making sure that you embed the principles of well-being within your uh, development from a community level and a building level is very important so i'm sure we will see more and more planning authorities uh, embedding these teams within their requirements fantastic thanks very much thank you ross it was great to be here <laughs> <laughs>